Welcome back to part three of our episode on chest pain risk stratification. Joining us, we have Dr. Hao Tran, cardiology advanced trainee at Liverpool Hospital and co-creator of AI for Society, and Dr. Nick Moore, emergency physician and data scientist at Liverpool Hospital. They're co-presenting a paper for us, and it's called Applications of Machine Learning to Undifferentiated Chest Pain in the Emergency Department, a Systematic Review. It's published by Stuart et al. in the Plus One Journal in August 2021. How this is a really interesting paper. Yeah, I thought so. It's a systematic review that explores the use of machine learning as a decision tool to assist clinicians to risk stratify patients with undifferentiated chest pain in the emergency, so adults in particular. They use machine learning and compare it against a plethora of current standards that you already use and have already discussed in this particular podcast. And obviously one of those standards is the emergency department physician, him or herself. So the two questions that were posed in this paper were quite simply, one, how has machine learning been applied to adults presenting to the emergency department with undifferentiated chest pain, uh, which I've intimated? And the second question is, do machine learning models show an improved performance compared to physicians or risk stratification techniques? So in terms of the PICO framework, patient population here is adults presenting to the emergency department with undifferentiated chest pain. The intervention is using risk stratification strategy that is machine learning. And the comparator is either the ED physician or current risk stratification tools. The outcomes from this paper were measures in terms of the ability to predict diagnosis of acute myocardial infarction and AMI, or uh, more of a prognostic dimension, uh, the prognosis with MACE, which is a, a major adverse cardiovascular events, which is a composite endpoint. And as everybody knows in cardiology, is a bit of a mixed bag varying from three to five points, depending on which paper that you're reading. Just to proceed to summarize the article succinctly for you, in terms of, by way of introduction, everybody knows that emergency physicians, they kind of balance a very chaotic environment and complex decisions based on varying degrees of uncertainty. And chest pain has a plethora of causes, and one of the most life-threatening is acute coronary syndrome, otherwise known as unstable angina, NSTEMI or STEMI. So the various clinical tools that exist to embellish the diagnosis of acute coronary syndrome, apart from the history and examination, are things like the TIMI score, things like the heart score, the GRACE score. And But despite the advent of these decision tools, acute coronary syndrome is still missed. And we've talked about ways of ameliorating that with uh, rapid access clinics. Now, artificial intelligence, what is it? It has many definitions. One of the definitions you could use is the theory and development of computer systems in their ability to perform tasks normally requiring human intelligence. So machine learning is a subset of artificial intelligence. And then deep learning in itself is a subset of machine learning. Both machine learning and and deep learning are designed to detect what you describe as nonlinear patterns in data. And you can use this to, to make predictions and support decision. Machine learning models constantly adjust their internal parameters as they train on a data set uh, to improve the performance. And so that when their algorithm is exposed to new data that it hasn't seen before, it can use this pattern to make a prediction. The ultimate aim of a good algorithm is the ability to generalize. So what that means is basically you don't want to overfit 
your algorithm to the data. And I guess a good example of generalizability, which we've all experienced is studying for the MCQ. You can tweak your knowledge by memorizing every answer to an established concrete cohort of questions, not understand the underlying concepts, and that's overfitting. And then if you're given a new MCQ and you don't understand the concepts, then you might not be able to generalize your understanding to present the right answer to that MCQ. So you want to be able to generalize the algorithm to novel data and still come up with a useful disposition. So here in this particular paper, the input data is clinical information, biochemistry, imaging results. These are all for patients with undifferentiated chest pain. The desired outcome is either a diagnosis of acute coronary syndrome or an estimation of the prognostication with MACE. So methods, systematic review. So they used the Prisma P guidelines, which was developed in 2015. And then they registered the systematic review of Prospero in 2020. Their search strategy was pretty acceptable. They had the study authors and a health sciences librarian go through and search all the databases for English language articles from the inception of the database to August of 2020. Databases they used were the usual suspects, uh, PubMed, Cochrane Library, Web of Science, Embase, and Scopus. They use subject heading and keywords. The keywords that they use were chest pain, artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, and emergency medicine. Then the two of the authors reviewed the citations and the abstracts, and they were blinded to the journal title, the study authors, and the institutions. They then got the tech, full text articles, and then with a standardized process, they extracted data. So what they extracted was study type, outcomes, population, input data used, type of machine learning methodology that was used, the number of input variables into the machine learning model, the comparators that they used, the results. Importantly, they commented on the public availability of the data set and the public availability of the model code. So we'll talk about that later. Another treatment that they did was uh, using the prediction model risk and bias assessment tool or PROBAS. They were able to quantify the risk of bias within the papers in terms of appraising the paper quality. Um, because the papers that they had left were of such a kind of heterogeneous quality, they weren't able to do a meta-analysis, so they converged on a narrative analysis of the included studies. The results, they started off with 3,590 records, plus 42 from the author's kind of personal libraries. That's 3,632. They got rid of duplicates, 3,361. Then they read the abstracts, screened the title and the abstract for legibility according to what I've described, and only had 82 papers left. From the 82 papers, they further excluded another 59 based on whether they were just commentary and reviews. They were only focused on CTCA monomodality or ECG monomodality. If they did not use machine learning uh, and if they did not focus on undifferentiated chest pain in the emergency department. So 39 of them went and what remained was just 23 articles. So it was just last 23 articles proceeded to the qualitative synthesis that they did. In terms of describing the study characteristics of the papers that they had, there's 23 papers, right? So most of them were retrospective, 14. Five were prospective, and then another four went from retrospective to prospective, but most were retrospective. Secondly, when looking at the common machine learning modalities, the most common was an artificial neural network, which is essentially a neural network, which may or may not be multi-layered, 14 of them. Then there was random forest support vector machines and gradient boosting, which are different mathematical approaches to machine learning. 
the most common primary outcome that they uh, used was diagnosis of AMI, and that was 12 cases, and MACE cases were six. In terms of the number of sites of the cases, most unfortunately in this paper were single site papers. So that was 16, and multi-site papers were seven. The largest multi-site paper was Than et al., which used 12 international cohorts from 2019. And they were actually able to develop the training data from two cohorts and then basically validated them on prospective data from another seven cohorts. So that was a pretty robust kind of arrangement. Population sizes were very variable, mostly quite small. So the range is from 228 in one study to 85,254. So in terms of the magnitude, uh, so most of them were small papers, less than 1,000, 14. 1,000 to 10,000 was seven and greater than 10,000 was two papers. What was fed into the model to train the algorithm in terms of the prediction variables, most of them use demographics. So most of all the papers, 21 of the 23 papers use demographics. I guess this is the bit where you kind of, by the senses, should wake up. It's like, hey, go, this, the machine's doing this. What do I do? And how is it different? So we use the demographics is 21. Patient symptoms and examination. So symptoms, 12. Examination, eight papers. Past medical history, including smoking and family history, 18 papers. So most of them. ECG results, interestingly, 17. And troponins were not all of the papers and only 12. Most of them were single troponins. And there was actually only one paper with serial troponins. Other lab tests were 10 papers. I mean, the dance of numbers is, it is what it is. It's nice to have it tickle against what you use as your ground truth, which is your brain and your experience. Now, the number of variables used is another interesting thing. That who knows how many variables we use when we make our decisions, right? So the number of variables, the range of it was 4 to 95. The medium of this was 23. It was a very kind of mixed. So the number of variables in, in five papers was less than 10. Eight papers were 10 to 30. Seven papers, 31 to 50. And then greater than 50 variables was, was two papers. So the number of variables is interesting. It's like, you know, based on what do you make decisions? You don't actually take a roll call of that. But these papers, you know, you can enumerate what variables fed into the algorithm as the algorithm, as you know, as the machine tried to think. In terms of results, they did the diagnosis of uh, AMI or acute coronary syndrome. 16 of the papers diagnosed acute coronary syndrome or AMI. All of the articles except two demonstrated that the machine learning algorithm outperformed the conventional uh, logistic regression, which is basically trying to conform the data to a curve or trying to find the best curve of best fit for the data. So that's when I was talking about the nonlinear data occurring in more than, you know, two, three dimensions, four, five, six. Interestingly, if you did quantum mechanics, quantum mechanics starts at 11 dimensions where, you know, the volume of the sphere might sit outside of the sphere. And so the machines can see that signal beyond four or five dimensions it befuddles us. In terms of prognostic prediction of the MACE and mortality, there were seven studies. Six of them used MACE, and one of them just used 30-day 30, 30 all-cause mortality and 30 days AMI following ED presentation. So there was a bit of a time variation with this cohort. So it varied from uh, the, the three-day MACE to the 90-day MACE. And so in terms of the, the longest one, the 90-day MACE was by Wu et al. 2020. Multi-center study, 938 patients. The machine learning methods were artificial neural network, random forest, support vector machines, 
And what they compared it to was what you've discussed already, the heart score. They used two models. One was the full model with all the variables, including the blood test, which they called the invasive variable kind of full model. And then they also tried to remove some of the variables by using a non-invasive variable of which one was interesting, the uh, QT prolongation, which seemed to factor into the predictive algorithm. The full model performed quite well in terms of the area under the curve, which is 0.853 versus the reduced model, which still performed not too badly at 0.808. So just uh, as a reminder, the area under the curve is a useful way of plotting true positive predictive rate against the false positive rate. And so that's kind of like the sensitivity versus one minus the specificity. And it's a very good way in a classification problem to differentiate two classes. It's basically a, a, a metric to say, how well is this thing uh, differentiating two labels? So between 0.5 and 1 is good, and the closer to 1 it is, the better. The more towards 5 it is, the more random it is. So the shorter time frame was three days MACE, and that was by Liu et al., uh, single center, 648 patients, and they compared random forest, which is a machine learning algorithm, to the TIMI score. They found that using eight potential vital signs and 15 heart rate variability parameters, they generated multiple models. So they generated multiple algorithms. And they found that one of the best algorithms actually only contained three variables, and it achieved an area under the curve of 0.812. And that was better than the TIMI score, which was 0.637. Then there were a few other studies, which I won't go into. Now, in terms of overall, the comparators, they tended to compare machine learning to uh, logistic regression, which was in six cases or most of them. And then they also compared against heart score, Timmy score, and in other scores like the European uh, Society of Cardiology one to three hour algorithm, which you know, we used to subscribe to and we do so less now. The GRACE score, uh, which is an estimated six month readmission, and the MUSE score, which is a peri-arrest modified early warning system that predicts the outcome of in-hospital cardiac arrest. When you look at this, apart from comparing to logistic regression and all these scores, they also compared machine learning to machine learning. Probably won't mean much to you, but they compared random forest to support vector machines to KNN, and they also compared decision tree to support vector machine to KNN, and they also compared decision tree to other machine learning methods. Just to give you one example, decision trees and random forest is basically framing the problem as if it were multiple little decision trees and the machine kind of moves along these decision trees and gets trained and retrained and tweaks itself with internal parameters to get the answer and then something like a support vector machine reframes it mathematically into a mathematical vector in space and then you try to optimize the mathematics in terms of a spatial mathematics to get the ultimate outcome. So the concepts are slightly different. What they found was, and interestingly, similar to human behavior, decision tree modalities seem to perform better than those other kind of mathematical vector abstractions of a human problem. Okay, so basically the, the overall results in terms of the comparators was that machine learning outperformed logistical regression in all but two papers. Decision trees or random forests, which are essentially the same thing, like random forest is lots of decision trees, outperformed the other types of machine learning methods. In four papers, they compared it against a physician. So artificial neural network performed better than the emergency physician in three of the four studies. And the remaining one, interestingly, in a more nuanced way, found that the emergency physician had a higher sensitivity. 87% versus 
85% for the uh, artificial neural network. Whilst the artificial neural network was a lot more specific, it was 78% for the ED physician versus 91% for the uh, artificial neural network. The other comment made in, in the results is in terms of descriptive is there was a poverty, an absolute poverty of data availability, transparency, and also code availability and transparency. So only two papers actually documented sharing of the data one of which the link didn't work anymore. And the other one actually wasn't readily available. We had to make a formal request. So essentially, if you read the paper, there was no link to lead to any data that you could access straight away. For none of the papers, was there any code publicly available? Tan et al., which Harold's out of New Zealand, uh, has a proprietary code and his paper is amazing, published in circulation, but his code is only available uh, by request and you've got to stipulate what research purposes you want to use it. And then finally, in terms of study quality, they ran all the papers through the ProBAST assessment and the ProBAST assessment gives you a disposition about the, the risk of bias, firstly, and the concern about applicability of the paper. So what's bad? In 16 of the papers, there was high risk of bias. And in five of the papers, there was high applicability concern. There were four papers with low risk of bias and seven papers with a low applicability concern. Only three papers actually fulfilled having a low risk of bias and a low applicability concern. And only four of the papers were actually externally validated with their machine model, which goes back to you know whether an algorithm once generated is generalizable to another situation. In terms of the topics that, that we could talk about, firstly, data governance, data provenance. There was no reproducibility of these papers because there was no data shared and no code shares. How can I reproduce it and ratify it? And who can? The generalizability of algorithms is important because you've got to have a study structure that allows for validation. You know, you've got to do a retrospective and a prospective, ideally, and only a subset of these were that. When you use an algorithm, who owns the algorithm? Who's liable when the algorithm goes wrong? And then there's a human interpretability. So, you know, AI is often described as a black box, but there are ways to undo that black box conundrum by making mechanics of your algorithm more interpretable to the human eye. And then you ask the philosophical question is like, well, am I the limiting step in the room? Like if you've gotten to the point, why are you simplifying or reducing things so that I can see what's happening and the computer can see it already and kind of like the existential and philosophical conundrum that you, you get with that, like human interpretability. Obviously, we need to, but what's going on? And then finally, interestingly, you know, a resource, political and life comment is about the miss rate. Commented in the discussion that you know, an acceptable miss rate is about 2%, but who accepts a 2% miss rate? You've got to count and balance the miss rate of 2% with over-investigation, which causes the estrogenic harm, which is palpable or measurable, but it's not on you, it's on somebody else. So do you offset that to somebody else? So therefore, what miss rate do you accept and what over-investigation do you accept and who accepts it and why? Thank you, Howard. That was a really nuanced explanation of a paper that had a lot going on. And I agree. I, I thought from a systematic review perspective, they did an amazing job. They really synthesized the evidence really well. Unfortunately, due to my own um, computer illiteracy, I had to rely on my dad to talk me through some of the issues for this paper. I have the advantage of 
him currently working on a PhD in deep learning. He's uh, in a slightly different area. For him, it's deep learning in terms of medical imaging interpretation, but he was able to give me a little bit of insight. As you've alluded to, uh, for him, one of the biggest problems, both the data that's going in and then the data that's coming out. But over time, it seems to me that these computer algorithms have sort of progressively increased in sophistication. We still have the problem of how they are trained and of what standard we're using to validate them and where sort of cross into problems of incorporation bias. I was looking at some of the comparisons brought up in this paper for AI in different fields, say, for example, image interpretation, where Google, for example, may use billions of data points to put together an AI algorithm that can reliably then interpret images. And, you know, if all of us have used Google image search, we still know that it's not always that perfect. Can a couple of a hundred or a couple of thousand patients really give us a reliable data algorithm compared to generations of medical knowledge? I think a lot of what this systematic review showed, it showed a lot of big problems in when you have a whole bunch of studies that are not particularly good quality and a whole bunch of studies that are quite small. You're very limited in the conclusions that you can draw in a systematic review. This definitely showed that. These sample sizes in these studies are tiny, particularly for machine learning studies. To have less than a thousand, that's a small ML study. You know, the mega studies, the mega cardiology studies from the sort of the 80s and early 90s, I mean, they had many thousands of patients, but even that is quite small for a machine learning set. Most of what I do is actually surrounding, you know, data engineering and actually getting data out of systems, mainly because it's just not there. In terms of the algorithms, I'm not surprised that the random forests tended to do better because in, when it comes to sort of small sample sizes, they tend to do a little bit better because they generally don't need quite as much data, certainly than the neural networks. The neural networks need masses of data. So I'm not surprised that the random forests sort of came out on top in terms of their ability to discriminate. There's a number of points within this systematic review that, I've, that you can certainly sort of talk about. Certainly the fact that they're all pretty positive is not quite my experience when it comes to using ML. And so I suspect there's quite a bit of publication bias here. And a lot of them are quite old in terms of the studies. Like there's a number of studies from the 1990s. And whilst, yes, machine learning has been around for a couple of decades, I mean, it has accelerated like enormously in the last 10 years. And the fact that there was relatively few studies in the last five years is probably concerning because a lot of the, particularly the deep learning architectures weren't invented. And so I suspect a lot of these studies are small kind of novelty studies that sort of got into various publications. I guess that brings us to the next question, which is if we're getting some reasonable hint of a decent performance from quite dated algorithms. How do we feel about the prospect of newer deep learning tools being able to give us better results? Perhaps the scope is going to suddenly explode. All of us are going to be out of jobs. What do we think will happen next? I don't think we'll be out of jobs because the algorithms need data and the data as they exist right now sit as disparate silos within chaotic workflows with various vintage of, you know, data governance and care. So I don't think you can run these algorithms in a reproducible way. I mean, like generalizability is important. Southwest Sydney, Westmead and Liverpool included, we've got an amazing 
potential data set in terms of the cross-section of ethnicity we have, you know. So any algorithms we generate are going to be good. You can, you know, probably be able to take them to places and they'd work rather than ones that were derived in mono-ethnic countries, for instance. The issue is there's a, there's a data deficit, there's a kind of data infrastructure deficit. And if anything, this is a potential space for us to move into as clinicians, if, if we want to. If we indeed, you know, want to talk about evidence-based or data-driven, you know, behavior, then what is your data? Where does it come from? And who looks after it? and to care about that. And so we can put our hands up as Nick has, and then just eke into that space so that we have agency. Getting the data is one of the big things. Um, certainly one of my sort of, I suppose, main project at the moment is putting together a massive data set. So I think I've got about, oh, it's about th between three and a half and four million patient presentations now. So it's actually getting to be of a size that's actually useful. But I think there's 1.6 million individuals in that data set so we're actually starting to be able to get that sort of stuff out of systems and to actually be queryable and useful and so i think that's sort of the first step in being able to do that and then obviously once you've got that sort of size of data there's a whole host of issues about interrogating that data in terms of data governance and structures and just tools to be able to deal with that sort of that sort of stuff which is a big effort and only then can you actually start to use algorithms on top of that. And with it all comes like political will, it comes, you know, people that are going to support that amount of data because that's, as you can imagine, many terabytes worth of data. And so you need space to put it all. And, you know, simple things like that you need to be able to do because clearly you can't interrogate the EMR directly because that's, you know, production system that has clinical st stuff and all that sort of thing. And clearly you need to be very careful when you're dealing with that. So you do need to to abstract it and you do need to clean it and you do need to do all these sorts of things beforehand which is a massive task in and of itself and there's structures that need to go with that but slowly we're getting there in southwest sydney you know there's still a long way to go before we can really have full scale how was mentioning the spider sense that you get when you're reading this paper about the variables that they actually used they only used patient symptoms in eight studies and i was fascinated by that because to me, the main point of contention is, do these symptoms represent something that I need to be concerned about? So I don't really understand how you can answer that question without considering the symptoms at all. It's a powerful comment. My clinical practice is that the story is key. So the symptoms are key. And you can have negative troponins, you can have no previous risk factors, um, and you can just be 40, 30 something coming in and, you know, subcontinental and with this kind of stuff when you're mowing the lawn. And I'm going to line you up for an angiogram. ECG is normal and then triple vessel disease. So the, the, story, the story is so important. You know, when you look at these machine learning projects, if you want to describe them as such, you've you got to look at the technical difficulties of them as well. Like, you know, you're going to get symptoms. How do you get symptoms? Do you have a, a sophisticated uh, natural language processing proponent in your midst, in your outfit that can extract it from EMR? I mean, we have Nick, but not, a, not everybody has that. So who's going to be your monkey trawling through 3 million admissions for that you know, typical versus atypical chest pain and how people choose to describe it, right? So it's, it's a hard input variable to harvest, as it were. And that, that might be why it's not reflected, not so much as it's not important. But it's interesting that it's not there because I would certainly place great gravity on it. 
I suspect there's a very simple explanation for why that's not there. And that is like natural language processing has really come along in the last sort of two or three years. So it's quite recent. I suspect that's one reason. And as Hao said, it's much more difficult to get those variables out. So the fact that it's all demographics and all the rest of it, the way the data is structured is very structured and easy to get out. Whereas getting data out of natural text and believe it or not, emergency physicians don't spell things very well. I put my hand up and I'm not great. My typing is not great, um, even though I spend three quarters of my time on a computer. But, you know, people typos, all sorts of stuff all over the place, which makes things difficult. And it's only until recently that the sort of the natural language processing models have been able to really deal with that quite well getting data out of that unstructured text is really hard and that's why you do need um i was going to say monkey's not quite the right word but somebody to physically go through it and extract it and you can't do that with three minute records that's a really relevant insight i guess that really brings us to questions of bias and generalizability doesn't it even in our existing hierarchies of evidence the retrospective papers are always considered to be in a lower tier we have the advantage of having humans going through the data but still there's clearly things that are lost in translation between what's happening on the floor versus what's being recorded my conversations prior to recording this tended to highlight as how you've already alluded to was that problem of generalizability. It's it's all too easy to get an algorithm that performs extremely well when you've got your nice controlled data set of 250 patients or 1,000 patients and make it perform better than clinician assessment in, in that particular data set. But what happens when you then put that model on the floor of the emergency department? How do we actually use it? And you know, will it actually perform as stated? Probably not. I guess that leads me to two thoughts. Firstly, a lot of the studies in this paper, they seem to demonstrate to me at least underwhelming statistical performance. I, like I haven't used area under the curve that much. I'll rely on you guys to guide me on that, but you know, 0 0.7, 0 0.8 to me didn't seem that impressive. Um, but certainly the sensitivities and specificities in the papers that quoted them were often in the realms of 70 to 80%, which certainly is well below anything that we would accept in terms of clinical tools for investigations. And yet most of these papers seem to compare against existing decision tools or physician assessment and claim superiority. How do we rationalize that discrepancy, particularly because papers that we've already covered in this episode have suggested that decision tools and physician gestalt actually performs much higher than what's being quoted? I think there was one paper, the New Zealand paper by Than et al. 2019, that used this MI3 clinical support tool. It was the only one that used paired high sensitivity troponin. And then it uh, further kind of imposed a low risk threshold where the NPV was 99.7% and sensitivity was 97.8%. And then a high risk threshold where the positive predictive value was 71.8% and the specificity was 967 and for that one, the area under the curve was 0.963. And that outperformed you know, European Society of Cardiology's one three-hour pathway. The more they kind of head towards what we do in, in terms of clinical reality, the better outcomes they get. <laughs> so the asymptote seems to be just us. We're on the right track in terms of what we do. I guess what's useful is, again, if you go back to clinical experience or it's correlate with data 
poverty, you know, interns were an algorithm, then maybe what you have is if you can have enough of these granulated data points, you can feed it into a tool which uh, is an analog for human thinking, and then get to something similar to what a human does in absence of human experience, or human data. And so it's a surrogate for experience in some ways. I think this paper is interesting for several reasons. One is for its content or lack thereof. And two is about the idea of what this is about. And that's probably more the important thing because this paper is not about good papers. This paper is more about an idea. And that idea is the ability to re-perceive what we deal with every day and what we define as data, what we can capture as data, and then what we can therefore see with this data. So you talk about primary prevention and secondary prevention. Someone comes in and they've had a heart attack. From that moment, they've had a heart attack at secondary prevention. You've missed the boat. So where comes your primary prevention? Is it your diabetes, your hypertension, and your blah, blah, blah? Or, or have you missed the boat on those as well? Like, does coronary artery disease start as a child? Arguably, it does. Um, but can you see it? Probably not. How do you see it? That might be the question. So you go secondary prevention, which is missing the boat, primary prevention as it's defined, and then you can actually look at those primary risk factors and think, well, what's the you know, primary prevention of that? And that's called primordial prevention. So, so artificial intelligence, I think, is, is a platform to talk about kind of like a change in the epistemological landscape of what we are familiar with in terms of medicine and how it can be redefined and how having a literacy in this space is how you be part of the narrative of redefining what medicine is because it's going to change whether we like it or not but it's best done with us there as literate kind of people with agency in the story that answers the question that i was about to ask which is why do we need ai and i guess what you're alluding to is that perhaps you know certainly from our existing evidence we're actually performing reasonably well at identifying high risk chest pains in the emergency department when they present and identifying the people who need follow-up and we're Broadly speaking, the systems that we've got in place are capturing people and are looking after people. But perhaps um, this will be a nice adjunct for stopping people getting to that point in the first place. So, so that's 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 a really useful thought. I'm just going to broaden this conversation slightly. We've already reflected that in emergency medicine, we're unfortunately woeful uh, when it comes to collecting data. It's certainly something that we've reflected in our previous podcast episodes on things like overcrowding, access block, and violence in the emergency department that we've just released. What about in the cardiology realm? Karen, you're currently doing your research fellowship, and I don't know how much this is going to be relevant to your current realm of work, but we've always found that cardiology have tended to have the largest bodies of evidence. You know, they do the clinical trials that have tens of thousands of patients. Where are we moving in the sphere with the new technologies that we have available to capture data? The studies and the data that's generated include usually thousands, tens of thousands of patients. We have so many presentations in the, in the field and usually changes that are made in practice are very incremental or very marginal because of how much evidence already exists. And currently machine learning, it, it seems like it's all the fad essentially. So uh, I know there's a lot of work being done in imaging uh, whether that be fluoroscopics or angiography, CT, and, and there's a lot of work being done to try and reduce human error. So as you may or may not know, angiography routinely or, or classically, decisions are made about lesions based on, say, percentages, and these percentages are usually human calculated. There's a lot of data or a lot of evidence now looking at 
whether or not you can automate this or whether you can machine learn this per se in the sense that you're taking that risk of bias out of it. Again, this can be a surrogate. It doesn't have to take over what physicians do, but there is a lot of movement in that field. And, and one of my colleagues, so obviously I finished training last year, one of my colleagues uh, who's also starting a PhD now, he's looking at VT and he's looking at arrhythmias and the role of machine learning in VT, which is which is a fascinating topic. You know, even just looking at it from an ED point of view, a patient comes in with a broad complex tachycardia, is it VT? There's all these different criteria that are, that are thrown out to try and work out whether this is a dangerous rhythm or not. And this all seems very susceptible to benefit from, from machine learning. So I think cardiology as a, as a whole and as a field has a lot to gain from machine learning. Based on what I heard, I just had a question or two, and I just wanted to get your inputs, guys. Uh, on what you thought. So we talked about generalizability a lot and we talked about overfitting, underfitting data. So I guess the two questions I had were, how do we find a balance? So how does machine learning find a balance in terms of overfitting and underfitting data? And the second thing sort of related to that is then generalizability. So obviously one big advantage is that you can prospectively validate an algorithm. You can make it very, very specific for a particular population, and that's a big advantage. But then say, what if you've got an algorithm developed in Liverpool or Westmead? Is that then applicable? So I'm working at North Shore at the moment. Is that applicable there? Or is that too, that's just within the same city? You've got two vastly different populations. In terms of the sort of overfitting, underfitting, that's one of the big issues with ML, particularly deep learning. I suspect, again, going back to sort of these systematic review, I suspect a lot of them are overly optimistic in their algorithms. And this is predominantly probably due to overfitting to their data sets because their data sets are so small. So there's a couple of ways of dealing with the actual issue. One is more data because generally more data will help you to generalize and, and stop your model from overfitting. There's a sort of a concept of, of the width of the data. So and that's how many variables you've got. So generally speaking, the more variables you've got, the more risk you have of overfitting on your actual data. And what that means is that rather than the machine learning algorithm learning like the general principles, what it does is essentially rote learn your data set. And that's kind of the analogy between the two. So basically it can perfectly split your data set into two categories, I have ACS, don't have ACS, but it fails to generalize because it's essentially just memorized your data set. And so that's the risk with really small data sets. And the fact that almost none of these studies had external validation that had none of, you know, that wouldn't even publish their data, wouldn't publish their code, suggests that they're probably all incredibly overfit their own data. And so that's why I suspect they're all very overly optimistic in terms of how good their actual models are. Within each of the models specifically, there's a whole heap of different techniques to actually reduce overfitting. And without going through the details of how a deep learning model actually works, um, there are layers you can put. So deep learning models basically have picture a human brain. They have a whole heap of different layers of, of what we call neurons. And those neurons are based on the physiological concept of a neuron and they and are arranged in layers and you can put a whole heap of layers inside that model 
which then helps to stop overfitting or memorizing your data set. There are ways you train it that can change it. So you can only train on bits and pieces of the data and hold out other bits. And you only actually assess your model on the holdout data sets. And I, there's some, some of the studies did say that they did it, but the details are not very clear, which again raises questions as to how good the actual studies are if they don't have a really good, and if they don't publish their code, you can't actually verify that. Your second question about generalizability, there are certainly elements of the overfitting that comes with generalizability. So whether the model actually generalizes to another population um, is an interesting question and generally is dealt with with more data. There's a recurrent theme to, to these models that just basically, generally speaking, your choice of model is kind of a bit here or there, but like more data, the more data you throw at a problem, generally speaking, the better the generalizability and model performance, but that's not always the case. So there's that, there's overfitting to your actual data set, that's the issue. But I guess the other issue, which Howe is kind of alluding to there, is whether you can actually deploy your model somewhere else is a really interesting and really difficult question because there's a whole heap of things as we've sort of alluded to that goes into actually getting data out presenting data for models being able to then use the models in production that is and there's a whole heap of infrastructure and governance and all sorts of other things that go through that i mean artificial intelligence models have regulated like a pacemaker is so there's a whole heap of regulatory approval and all sorts of other things that go with models. So they do need TGA approval, for instance, to be used in clinical practice. It's not quite the same, the regulatory environment, but it's, it, it's, it's very similar. And when you have a completely unexplainable black box, it's really difficult to get TGA approval to say, this model works really well, trust us guys, doesn't quite fly with the TGA. So there's a whole heap of other things that go to it with sort of generalizability being able to then be able to make the model useful in practice. Where do you think more novel or like more promising applications lie? I really think there's a whole heap of low hanging fruit of stuff that we don't like to do because it's tedious, it's boring, it's stuff, you know, it's, it's administration, it's stuff that we're not interested in. And I think that's where AI needs to go and that's where AI needs to work. And there's a paper called Automating the Boring Stuff. The idea of clinical decision support and stuff is great, but I think if you actually helped clinicians out by taking over some of the stuff that you don't need a clinician to do and be able to do that really reliably, results checking, for instance. How many ECGs do we see every day that get handed to you on a shift? And if all of them went into a model and that model could then predict, as Hal said, heart disease down the future. And we could actually suggest that these people start doing risk modification now, for instance, on the basis of a model that looks at the ECG. You know, those sorts of things that you're not going to look at in clinical practice because it's not directly relevant. But even, you know, checking the results of the various x-rays done and to make that safety net safer. There are technical issues there are ethical issues what happens if the model misses or something or something like that but whilst clinicians do it at the moment if you could get something reliable enough to be able to take over those things that ed clinicians we like to get out there do things treat patients do all that that sort of thing don't like doing the admin stuff quite so much i think that's an area where we can really make our time better spent doing other things 
Nick, you obviously have quite an extensive knowledge of AI and data science. Perhaps not so much from a data science point of view, but obviously a lot of interest in heuristics and in cognitive decision-making. Let's just say we advance 5, 10, 15 years down. These AI decision tools seem to work a lot more effectively. And we get to the point, patients are coming in, they are being fed through this process and, you know, it arrives at a conclusion that the patient is at a risk level that perhaps we wouldn't have perceived. How do we navigate the concept of the black box? It sounds to me like even the attempts for the black box to be rationalized are essentially artificial. So they're artifices of the computer reaching a conclusion and then creating an explanation for the conclusion rather than demonstrating the explanation for the conclusion. Is it problematic that we don't know how we got from point A to point B? Is that the whole point of AI to begin with? Is that it's allowing the big data analytics to see things that we as individual humans can't perceive? Just thinking about what I've listened today and adding that to maybe my understanding of artificial intelligence, intelligence in general, and how we formulate decisions from the way I do it personally through my readings that I've read about what how science understands how you come to conclusions. I think even if there is an AI machine, right, you can insert a bunch of data sets into and it can give you a perceived answer as to if the clinical question is, does this patient have acute coronary syndrome? From what I understand about making reliable decisions, there's two main things you really need to understand whether you're striving for certainty or not. And I think if you're striving for certainty with the clinical question you're asking, most AI models or most models that try to map our cognitive behavior sort of come to the conclusion that if you desire absolute certainty, that's a pathological approach to living your life. That's what underlies a lot of diseases that affect people's mental illness, right? For example, you become very anxious because what you desire is absolute certainty in every outcome and every decision you make. And if you strive for that, that's impossible. That's an exponentially explosive pathway that has infinite outcomes, right? In order to avoid that and make sensible and accurate decisions, It's not about the way you achieve the decision. What it is about, really, it's about problem framing. How do you frame the problem that you have in front of you? And you'll find that if you frame the problem in the correct way, then the answer is much more salient and relevant and easier to access. And that's how I think about things now. And hearing this conversation, I guess the question that still arises is, it will be down to the clinician to frame the problem. You still need to frame the problem when you feed it into the machine. The machine is not going to be able to frame the problem for you. And so, yes, there might be a button that I can press that if I am framing the problem that appears to me as I've got patient X, they have presented with symptoms this, and I will frame that problem as I'm going to frame the problem as does this patient have ACS? Enter it in, and then the answer will be yes or no. That might be how that would work. I don't know, from what I understand, I think it would be extremely complicated to get a decision-making tool to be artificially intelligent and take away that problem framing step. I think the ability to frame problems is something that is so poorly understood from just an understanding of cognitive science that then to translate that to an algorithm would be almost impossible, I would imagine. The real question is, what is the clinical question you're asking? If you want to boil it down to the bedside, right? And I say this to JMOs all the time, right? Like you have a D-dimer that's elevated. Sometimes people just order D-dimers, right, randomly. You know, you just get D-dimers that just appear. And then you have to take a step back and just go, well, what is the clinical question you're asking? How do you frame the problem, right? Like you've got someone who's come in who has ECG changes and has a shortness of breath and a history of malignancy. Well, then like you could have a negative D-dimer in that context if you don't frame the problem appropriately and you could be missing stuff still. 
So the relevance of data points is all about problem framing. And I think that's still going to be an onus that's going to fall on the clinicians going forward in the context of undifferentiated patients that present to the ED. Premon, I, I would agree with you entirely in terms of framing the question is so important. And at the moment, artificial intelligence can only answer very specific questions and you have to train it on a specific question and actually give it a specific question with a specific set of inputs and all that sort of thing. In terms of moving to an artificial general intelligence, we are so far from that kind of a world. We work in a very complex environment. A human being is very complex. And let's be honest, like deep learning models, there are black boxes, but the biggest black box we have is in the base between our ears. And that's, you know, we do have some idea of how, you know, some of the way humans think and the way humans come to decisions. But that's really also, we've only got a very rudimentary understanding of that. I don't see a problem with the two, you know, working together, but I think it's a long way. The benefit to a data-driven approach, if you have the data, is that a computer can get 200 years of clinical experience in the space of a couple of minutes. And that's where these big models can be quite powerful in that you can get a lot of clinical experience very, very quickly. If it doesn't have the specific question and the specific clinical question you're after and your target variables that you've trained it on, if they're not the specific variables that you're interested in, you're not going to get an answer. And a human is way more flexible to be able to come to that and to be able to move between those clinical questions and to interpret, as Pramod said, a D-dimer in the clinical context is, I mean, a machine is so far from being able to do that. And the human brain is much more flexible in being able to do that. Thank you so much. This has been a fascinating discussion. How would you like to give us your three take-home points? Machine learning after the dust and hype settles is just another clinical tool that we have to use very carefully. Uh, reproducibility seems to be an issue. So uh, you need to worry about data governance and transparency, especially with code as well and availability of that. Going forward, we need clinician vigilance and literacy in AI before we can adopt these machine learning algorithms. Thank you so much. Just the process of reading that paper and then, you know, rationalizing it and having this conversation has been illuminating. So both from a understanding of technological landscape. Could I suggest yeah. something? You need to follow in the footsteps of your dad. <laughs> He's on a good path. Thank you so much to our guests. That's been an excellent discussion how David, you did an amazing job presenting and current, your insights have been really useful. I'm definitely going to revisit my ideas on golf. Nick, sounds like you're doing some really incredible work at Liverpool and looking forward to watching that space to see what comes. Thank you so much to everyone for taking the time out to listen to us. As always, we welcome your comments, uh, questions, and your feedback. Please email us on westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. We look forward to joining you again next month where we'll be talking pediatrics.
Sometimes I feel alone.